Welcome to the Yogi MD podcast. It's Nadine, yoga teacher, health coach, and retired doctor, here to bring you and your body together, not in sickness, but in health. Thanks for taking this time for yourself. Today, I am pleased to welcome Dr. Mika Estrada. Dr. Mika Estrada received her PhD in social psychology from Harvard University and is now an associate professor in the Department of Social and Behavioral Sciences and the Institute of Health and Aging at the University of California, San Francisco. Her research program focuses on social influence, including the study of identity, values, forgiveness, well-being, and integrative education. She is now engaged in several studies which involve the implementation and assessment of interventions aimed to increase historically underrepresented minority students in the science, technology, engineering, and mathematic careers. Thank you so very much for being here today. I read with great interest about your background. You did not have a traditional route. Can you please tell us about it? Um, yeah, I don't know what traditional route is, but I, um, I guess in some ways it was traditional in that I went directly from high school to, um, to an undergraduate program at UC Berkeley. Um, I think maybe one of the things that's less traditional is that when I was in high school, we were um, on, on welfare and came from a high school that had issues, you know, had um, issues of violence and many, a majority of people that I went to school with didn't go on to four-year uh, colleges. So um, so I went to UC Berkeley and um, was able to get my bachelor's degree from there. And I took a year off between my bachelor's and PhD and worked for an environmental group. And uh, and then I applied to work with someone that who I had been told the work was similar to what I was interested in. And um, Again, this is still kind of traditional is that I, I only had one year out and then I went in and um, applied to Harvard where I didn't think there was any chance in the world I was going to get in. <laughs> <laughs> but I applied and my idea was I would apply and then they would they would not take me, but then I'd find out why they didn't take me and then I would take a year or two and build up my resume and then apply again and then apply to lots of other graduate schools and, and see um, – where I would go, but they let me in on the first time. And I was just in shock about that. Um, so some of the things that happened while I was working on my PhD is that I got married in my second year and, um, I had a baby in my fourth year. And by the time I was, uh, finishing my degree, I was pregnant with a second baby, second child. And at that point I felt pretty worn out from academia uh, felt pretty worn out from the competitiveness of it. I'd been at Berkeley and Harvard, both extremely competitive places mm-hmm. and and um, in some cases really toxic. I would say half the people in my department who were professors had had some kind of major health issue, probably before the age of 55, 60. You know, they were, it wasn't a healthy place. And I thought, I don't want to live my life this way. So I dropped out of academia and I stayed home with my kids for 10 years. And I think that's where the non-traditional piece came in. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I did a little bit of adjunct teaching at local universities, but I wasn't writing and publishing and really didn't have any intentions of going back into academia at that point. But, um, the, you know, life has its ways of, of uh, making decisions or mo- moving you towards things even when you don't know it. And so um, 
I eventually got asked if I wanted to work on a project with somebody and I got involved and then we started writing grants and started getting funded and suddenly I was back in academia again and um, still a little bit non-traditional. I'm not in a teaching position. I'm in what's called a um, research faculty position. So that means I raise all my money for my salary through grants. I see. So if I don't get grants, I don't have a salary. Um, so I'm at UC San Francisco and they administrate my grants but they don't actually contribute directly to any of my salary at all. So, Do you find that to be particularly stressful or challenging? How do you cope with that? You know, it's a, um, it's a trade-off. So um, when you are someone who's a professor who's teaching and who is, your salary is paid for by your university, you have a lot more responsibilities. You have committee meetings, you have to teach, you um, are required to participate in the university to a certain extent, in a way that is uh, much more demanding. When you bring in your own money, basically, uh, to the most part, they they kind of leave you alone. You still do a little bit of service, but you're, you don't have to teach, and you don't really have to, for, especially for my research, I can be anywhere where I'm doing it. So I have a lot of flexibility. It's like owning my own company. Mm-hmm. It is like owning your own company in that if you don't bring in any money, you won't have a job. So, um, so I get a lot of flexibility and freedom on one hand, and on the other hand, I have to make sure that I'm bringing in grants to pay for myself and my staff. So I see. That's a trade-off. Yeah. Your work is fascinating. Can you please describe it and why you became interested in exploring how kindness and community influence the retention of historically underrepresented minorities in science? Yeah. Um well, first, I'll just say, you know, I'm Latina. All four of my grandparents were born in Mexico. I'm second generation in the United States. So I, I come to the issues of underrepresentation in science as someone who has participated as uh, in situations where I was highly underrepresented, especially at Harvard. There was mm. At Harvard, there was a group called the Du Bois Society, and it was the African-American, the Latinos, and the Native Americans all together, and there was probably maybe 15 of us. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> so there wasn't any enough of any one of us in the um, PhD arts and science program, PhD programs to really have our own groups. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there is that piece. My, my PhD, uh, when I wrote my dissertation was on forgiveness. And so I was always really interested in social relations and how, how we treat each other impacts our world, impacts our, our well-being. I was interested in to the extent in which we, how we interact with each other and makes a difference. And as a social psychologist, one of the things I loved about it was it was really the study of how other people influence us. And in day-to-day life, people underestimate how influenced we are by each other. We, t- we think of ourselves, especially in the United States, as, and I think the, the white culture is very independent. You, um, you, you do everything on your own. And bootstraps. Bootstraps, right. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking back to like one of the first moments I had as a child that I remember of being independent. And that was when I made the choice to... Um, go into a pool and swim underneath water. I have a really vivid memory of being underwater and opening my eyes and realizing you could see underwater. And I was probably about three years old. I loved, I always loved swimming. And I think of this as like one of the big independent moments of my life. But really, it wasn't that independent. You know, my mom took me there to the classes. There were other kids jumping in the pool, which me seeing them jumping in the pool gave me a sense of bravery to do it as well. Mm. Um 
And so, you know, there was a lot of things, social things around me that really gave me that, that, um, impetus or bravery or whatever to do this very independent thing, which was to go underwater. So when I think about kindness and community, this is really me still being interested in how the way we treat each other influences the choices that we make in our lives. And one of the things that I noticed in the literature about persistence of um, underrepresented groups is that there's a lot of focus on getting rid of the negative. Like, let's get rid of the stereotype threat. Let's get rid of the biases. Let's get rid of, you know, um, racism. There's a, I mean, and I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things, but to live in a world where we have no negativity and no positive, it's very, very stressful. And it's ambiguous. It's, 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 it's hard. Mm-hmm. We actually look for cues. We walk into a room and we look for cues that we belong and that we're not going to be threatened. And it's not just because there's nobody there with a gun trying to shoot us. It's also because we're looking for smiles and we're looking for people to be happy to see us um, and to convey to me, conveying kindness is conveying that I'm not going to hurt you. I actually like you. You know, I'm, I am a friend. I am, I am someone who is going to, um, to support you and protect you when we're kind, when someone smiles at us, that we know that they're not a threat anymore and that there's something good happening there. And that we also want to be seen and heard. We want to be seen and heard that our dignity is being recognized. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. I think kindness is a way of somebody conveying to us that our dignity matters to them. So, um, so I started, I wrote this paper on kindness and community. It came out in January in the social issues policy review. And it was really kind of a culmination of 30 years of thinking really. And, and just really trying to push this agenda that let's not just talk about getting rid of the negative, but let's talk about how do we build the positive because we need that. Um, we need that in our society in the, in directing our policies at the, at the national level and probably international level, but we also need that in our classrooms. We need that in our mentorship relationships. We need that in our training programs. We, we need the positive too. And if we just ignore it, we're not going to flourish. You have talked about in your work, the tripartite integration model of social influence. Can you define that? Talk about that a little bit, please. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, can I talk about that? Um, (laughs) Yeah, so this this model really came from research in the 1950s um, from my advisor, actually, Herb Kalman. And he was interested in, he was Jewish, he was from Vienna, and he got his PhD at Yale, and he was interested in trying to understand why people would comply with orders to hurt somebody. That's really where it comes from. So he was looking at what are the, the social um, things that can happen that would cause somebody to comply and hurt somebody else. Um, so what I did is I took his model and the variables in his model and I applied them to a situation where, where you're not doing it because you're trying to avoid um, sanctions or being hurt or being, or being excluded, which is what would happen for someone in a negative situation, right? But what happens when you actually want the opposite? You want you want to move them through positive things. <laughs> and I come back to the positive. So there's three levels. So when we become a part of a group, when we feel we're part of a group, three ways in which we kind of can connect to the group. The first is that, can we do what the group does? Or do we have mm-hmm. efficacy? Do we feel we can do what the group does? So mm-hmm. if you're part of a basketball team, can you play basketball? If you are part of a, of a um, spiritual group, can you 
sit and meditate or can you do the things that they do, right? And if you're going into professional career, can you do the science? The second level is do you develop an identity with the group? Do you identify with the group? You know, do I think of myself as a basketball player? Do I think of myself as, as a yogi? Do I think of myself as, as a scientist? And um, the last level is values. Do you start to internalize the values of that group? So are the things that the group values things that, that you value too? And when you get to the point where their values are your values, you really feel that you identify with that group and belong to that group, and you can do what the group does, that's usually a group that you feel pretty integrated with. You share values, you share identity, you share actions, and you're very, very likely to comply with the norms of that group. So in the case of professional um, students going into science, the norm is to continue to do the science, you know, to persist in that career. And, and so I looked at those three things, to what extent are people developing efficacy in science, identity in science, and endorsing the values of science, and to what extent does that predict people persisting, and was able to show that those were really important. I think one of the, the things that the contribution was that a lot of the emphasis at the time when I was first started doing this work was on efficacy. So if we can just teach mm -hmm. those brown people to do the science and have confidence like I do, then they'll do it. But what I found in talking to my colleagues who had completed their PhDs and had decided not to go into science or go into research, many of us felt, yeah, we can do the science, but I don't feel like I belong with this, this group of people. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't think doing science for science's sake, sake really is enough. I want to do science because only if it's going to benefit my community, it's going to benefit the people that I love, it's going to make the world a better place. And so, um, so my values weren't aligning. So I was able to show that this was true, you know, that, that the identity and values actually are much stronger predictors of uh, persisting. That was my um, next question. Than the efficacy. They all predict that in the long run, um, if you look at the, the study that I did that was published um, on the Timsey model shows that if you look at those measures of efficacy, identity, and values as people are graduating, it predicts them staying in a STEM field, a science, technology, or engineering and mathematics field four years later. And the unique, the strongest unique predictor is identity. The values is also pretty strong. So the efficacy, you need it, but it's, it's not sufficient for making the decision. <laughs> How much of a dance is the identity piece between how much you contribute to the situation and how much the social fiber contributes to the situation as well? Well, I think it varies from situation to situation. You know, there's there's certain times when um, we we or I will act very independently and very much opposed to the social situation in which I'm I'm in. And then there's other times when I go along because everybody else is doing it too, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think it, it varies. But I do think underneath the whole thing, <laughs> we're looking to feel safe. And so we often will do what feels safest in an environment. Um, that's not always true. People will risk all kinds of things, you know, their life and limbs, especially for people that they love. But, And I think that's something that's very primal from thousands of years of um, evolution. So do you think that we as human beings are wired to be compassionate? Why should we care about each other? What, what, <laughs> you know, it's a question that I'm asking myself when I'm watching our social climate right now, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. What, how do you think we could 
make changes and, and be kinder to one another. You know, a while ago, they were trying to model um, schools of fish swimming through on computers. Mm-hmm. And the original computer um, algorithm tried to get them to be together. And what happened was that they all ended up on top of each other. So they had to create an algorithm that had a tension of separating at the same time as coming together, right? Because they can't be too far apart for a school of fish to be a school of fish. But if they're on top of each other, that's also not what a school of fish is like. And I think that that's a really good way of thinking about how we are as social creatures. Mm -hmm. We don't necessarily want to be right on top of each other, but we want people in proximity enough that we we can work as a group, you know? Yes. (laughs) And compassion is necessary in order to keep a group together. And we know from evolutionary psychology and and, and even looking at um, relationships of primates that individuals that stay in groups are more likely to survive. An individual chimpanzee in the forest is not going to last as long as as one that's in a group. And there's evidence of that for humans as well. So these uh, kind of pro-social behaviors of of compassion or forgiveness or um, kindness, these are the things that help us to stay in relationship with each other, which feeds group behavior and group group, um, cohesion. Um, and I think in the long run makes us more likely to survive. That being said, there's also times when groups go into tension with each other. So a lot of the good work on this is by a guy named DeWall. It's D-E, and his last name is capital W-A-A-L. Okay. And he does a lot of work on primates and looking at the, there's a great book called Peacemaking Among Primates, looking at how primates reconcile with each other after they've had disputes. However, when we feel threatened mm-hmm. by another group, we know what happens, right? There's There can be tension and they're each vying for survival. I think that that's one of the things that's happening right now is that some groups are feeling extremely threatened. And because of that, because they're feeling very threatened and they're used to having a lot of power and they're lo- they're not going to be able to sustain that amount of power hmm. forever because the demographics are changing. And I think they're frightened. And we know from from neural work that when we're working from a place of fear, our brain works very, very differently than when we're working from a place of feeling safe. Um, The way we process information is different. What we attend to is different. Our cognitive capacities change. So is there room for competition? Healthy competition. Is there such a thing? It seems like there is. I mean, I, I haven't studied that, so I can't say from the research, but I know that if you look at the organizational psychology literature, there's a thing called social facilitation. And that's the idea that when you're doing, they had people all working like in a factory and when other people were around them, they were more efficient. They, they worked more quickly Mm -hmm. than when they were by themselves. Mm -hmm. So there is some evidence that we are facilitated by having other people around and that little bit of competition might make us more efficient and more able to do things. However, um, the caveat to that is that that worked really well when people knew what they were doing. So their behavior that they were doing engaged in was well rehearsed. But when they were given novel activities and other people were brought around, they actually got worse hmm. um, because they got stressed, right? Well, am I as good as these other people? And I'm still trying to figure this out. Sure. <laughs> in one of your recent academic talks, you refer to the web of connection. I'm going to paraphrase what you said in that talk. You said that a successful society is characterized by competence, creativity, kindness, and well-being. 
in your opinion, do you think that being part of a community augments personal health? And can a lack of inclusion be detrimental to health? Well, first, let me just say that I, this is, I ended my talk with that, and it wasn't like I had provided all this evidence that this was true. This was really me. It was the last slide kind of extrapolating and asking the idea of maybe what is good, what we need in academia is actually what we need in society. Sure. So I was, it was kind of the big thought at the end. And um, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is, is this idea that a, of a holistic education, H-O-L-I-S-T-I-C, mm. holistic, um, a place where the heart, the mind, the body, the soul all are nurtured in that environment. And by that, I mean that from the heart, like that emotionally we feel safe, we feel a sense of belonging, we feel we feel good in our, um, we feel experience kindness and, and um, from the mind that we're learning and we're acquiring the knowledge, especially in an academic environment, you think, you know, acquiring the knowledge and the skills that we need in order to, to prosper. From the body in the academic environment, I was thinking much more about is there representation? Are there people like you? Are there mm-hmm. actual demographic representation of that's representative. So you're not the only one, but that in the academic setting that the administrators, the faculty, the student body reflects are similar (laughs) and uh, representative of the population. And then at the spiritual level, that there's equal opportunity for meaning making and creativity Mm -hmm. and, and to engage in that for all people who are in that, that environment. So I think those things are also true for, um, for society in a lot of ways. I think there is some certain amount of relaxation that happens when we're around people who understand us um, without us having to explain it. This was this has been talked about for ages. You know, it's not I didn't make that up. This is, you know, Maslow talks about it. Um, and a lot of the great mystics talk about these things. One of the most profound things that they experience is this idea that we are interconnected, that everything's connected. Yes. And that this web of connection is not just theoretical, but they actually have the experience of it. Um, and that often changes the decisions that they make and how they, they shape their lives. So how we behave and what we do impacts the people around us, but, and it impacts our, cha- our planet. I mean, we're, we're threatening <laughs> ourselves. We're destroying our planet because we can't conceive of the fact that there's interconnection um, between us and everything else. Mm-hmm. So we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't have survived without the ability to cooperate and accept one another. I often wonder how and why we get so far away from that. Is it because we're so spread uh, apart from each other physically, and so it's easier to identify with a smaller group in a specific location and to feel so separate from everyone else? I, you know, I think it's kind of like the fish that I was talking about, that there's always, there's a tension between um, coming together and breaking apart, right? So even if you think about tribal times, Native American tribal times in, in the Americas, there were small tribes, but often there would be marriages and one of the people would leave and have to go to another tribe, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> there was a group that was tight, but at the same time, there was always a little bit of flexing. When there's threat to the group, then we coalesce, and so and our cognitive uh, processes also reinforce that. So we start to we actually filter information in a way that that makes it so our group looks feels better and that out group looks worse. And so the answer is, I think, 
to, we have to rethink what our group is. Because um, mm. on a planet that we have uh, limited resources and CO2 emissions going higher and um, global warming occurring, our group has gotten really, really big if we allow it to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and getting back to the safety issue, I think when we feel forgiven or we feel um, kindness from people, we feel more connected and we feel less threatened. And it's a safer environment for us to live in. I guess I want to add one thing about this: sure. is that people who have, who are navigating environments where there is not kindness, or there's kind of an, I called macro, <laughs> macro affirmation. So there's there's posters and pictures saying we love diversity, and here's all the people that are doing this. And then the micro affirmation is totally missing. You go <laughs> into your classroom, you're the only person there of color. You're you know the only woman in your physics department, even though you saw on their brochures all these women. Um, when there's a mismatch between the macro affirmation and the micro affirmation, this creates ambiguity and it takes a lot of, you're, you're constantly looking to see, is this okay or is this not an okay environment? I think that's one of the things we have to mend in our in our academic environments is is this ambiguity that we, we were, although now it kind of almost feels like we're back at it, a really like overtly prejudiced academic environments, you know, where racism was prevalent, women weren't allowed, whatever, you know, that was very, very clear. And then we had the civil rights time when we're supposed to be moving towards more inclusion. But I think what we've ended up with is a very ambiguous academic environment for people to learn in. Well, and I also think that coupled with that is the pressure to, for you to feel like, well, if I'm the only one, and I really don't have anyone else to look up to, um, then it's up to me to prove that I belong here. And that message in my experience, has also been reinforced from the top as well. Well, yeah, yeah, you got here, so show us what you got and prove yeah. it. Yeah, I think that's right, and I, I think a lot of um, people who are in who are operating from a place of privilege don't even recognize it. They're just assuming that their value system and the way that they have navigated is totally fair, and we have choices about how to respond to that. I think as individuals. Hmm. So my choice was to focus on the positive and sit with what is my personal mission. Like if, if I was to die mm. in 10 years, what would I want people to remember me for? And if people mm. remember me for talking about kindness and community and fostering that and trying to do things that promote that in our society, I think I could be okay with that. So. <laughs> so that's a great segue into what your personal definition of being healthy is. Ah, well, my, you know, mine is a lot like what I talked about, the holistic. I think um, what you do in each day, your daily practices are actually really, really critical for personal well-being and health. For me, my ideal self, this isn't what I do every day, but this is what my ideal self does every day. <laughs> my ideal self every day um, eats something green, drinks lots of water, doesn't have gluten, eats you know, organically and, and, um, and very healthily. My ideal self exercises, uh, meditates for at least a half hour every day, um, writes, which is a form of creativity for me in a way of, of kind of taking what's inside and sharing it with the world. Mm. My ideal self has fun, is a blessing to the people around me, and doesn't buy a bunch of crap. If I do those things, you know, that's that's my aspiration every day. I wake up in the morning and go, you know, can I, these are the, my ideal self would do those things. And that would be a very balanced, healthy, 
life. <laughs> well, thank you. I have to say, I truly appreciate you honoring us today as, as a guest on the show. You have definitely made a difference to me. You made a difference to my daughter. She's the one who saw you speak at the conference. So That's amazing. That you made an impact. You made a positive impact in a young life who then passed that on to me So, because I'm a lifelong learner. And so she gave me a gift as well. So thank you. I think as someone who, who grew up with um, a lot of challenges and, you know, there was drug addiction and all kinds of things as I was growing up um, in my family, to, to realize that, I, that my story could have um, purpose, mm-hmm. a gift, an honor. And now it's time for practical tips. Spirit tip. Sit quietly and contemplate your personal values, your core beliefs. Only from a place of knowing what your personal values and core beliefs are can you make informed decisions about how best to take care of your mind and your body. Thanks for being here. See you next time.